people stood still on streets and in homes. All attention was in one place, the crown. The queen's funeral was one of those rare spectacles endowed with the power to capture the imagination, not just of one nation, but of the world. The procession, the procession, I can't say that word apparently, should have practiced that, huh? Procession, the procession's start was marked by the playing of solitary bagpipes and followed by the silence of hundreds of people careening their necks to get just a glimpse the Queen's English oak coffin. The only sounds seemed to be the footfalls of the British Navy as they escorted the gun carriage upon which the Queen rode. The scene was royal. Flowers, flags, every kind of pageantry one could imagine. All of it characterized that long march to the queen's final resting place. And for a day, all attention was on the queen and the crown. As we turn to Matthew chapter 8 this morning, not 1 Kings, to your surprise, despite the introduction, As we turn to Matthew chapter 8 this morning, we find that Matthew's goal is just that, to put all of our attention on the crown, all of our attention on King Jesus. He has lined the first 17 verses of chapter 8 with the miraculous, but the goal of all the miraculous is to put all of our attention on Jesus. Jesus is one who does not just speak with words of authority, as in the Sermon on the Mount, but he is one who works with authority, as we shall see in chapters 8 and 9. Matthew hopes to sort of pile these miracles atop the argument that he has been marshalling since the open of his gospel. Remember, he opens up and he wants to argue to us, he wants to convince us, to persuade us that Jesus is the messianic Davidic king. He's the one to come. And so he lays out Jesus' credentials. He says Jesus comes from the right family. He fulfills the right prophecies. Indeed, he has the right endorsements. The Father says that Jesus' baptism as the Spirit descends upon him Behold, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus even fills up the right shoes. He stands as a second sort of Adam. and He stands fast and firm against the lies and the temptations of the serpent. He comes out of the wilderness and goes upon a, a mountain where he speaks God's word. Indeed, he delivers God's law to those who would listen. He appears as a new sort of Moses. Matthew wants us to see over and over again that Jesus is the one that the whole old covenant was pointing to. God has made promises, and in this man, in this king, those promises will be fulfilled. That's what Matthew wants us to see this morning. It's what he wants us to see in these miracles. If we just read these miracles apart from attention on the crown, we have missed their point. Matthew wants us to understand who Jesus is, just to recognize Jesus' authority in these healings. I've tried to summarize the main idea for you this way, that Jesus heals by his word and his wounds. Jesus heals by his word and his wounds. Outline is there before you. We will pray and begin our time together this morning. Let's pray. 
Father, we ask for your help this morning. We are slow to learn, quick to forget. We are weak to climb to the heights under which you have called us and instead find ourselves too often standing in the foothills. Many of us have come this morning pained by our own graceless hearts, prayerless days, our poverty of love, our sloth in the pursuit of holiness. Some of us have sullied consciences. Many of us have wasted countless hours and failed to take advantage of heaven-sent opportunities. Lord, forgive us of these sins. Forgive us of the blindness that we too often have as the light shines around us. We pray that you would once more this morning take the scales from our eyes that we might see. Indeed, we ask that you would take those idols from our hearts and grind them to dust. Jettison from us all unbelief. Make it our chiefest joy to study you, to think on your word to delight in the doctrines of grace, to delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that at his feet, Father, we would sit this morning as Mary once did. That through your word, God, we might lean against the chest of Christ as John once did. Lord, we appeal to you. We ask that you would do all these things. You would teach us once more to count all the, the things of this world as rubbish when compared with the unimaginable greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we pray that you would not let our faith cease from seeking you until it vanishes into sight when we behold the face of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. You may have noticed, via the outline, my intention to work through this passage backwards. And the reason I want to do that is very um, specific, and it's verse 17. Verse 17 is sort of the lens through which we should view all of the chapter. And so it's almost like verse 17 is a pair of glasses that we're going to pick up and put on our faces. But we want to understand the miracles in light of verse 17. Verse 17 is sort of the, the hermeneutical key that unlocks for us Matthew's purpose in recording these miracles as he has right here. What does verse 17 say? This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Verses 14 through 17 sort of function like a summary of the whole section, and Matthew is giving us the reason that he has included all of these things. He wants us to recognize Jesus' identity as Isaiah's suffering servant the servant who bears the burdens of his people. Indeed, we are to recognize that Jesus is that servant, that Jesus is the king. You might ask, what, what does this mean? He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Well, in the passage, we'll, we'll literally see Jesus take illnesses and diseases away from people. But the idea in the Bible is that disease and sickness often stands in as a portrait for sin and its impact on the world. It shows how sin has polluted absolutely everything. And so what Matthew wants us to recognize is that yes, Jesus heals by his word and with his touch, but ultimately those are short-term things. What Jesus ultimately does is he atones for sin. He heals us of the stain of sin. We are to, in his miracles, 
recognize that he has the right to heal only because he came and died for the sins of his people. When he heals, he's not just giving us a raw display of power. He's teaching us about the cross that is to come and giving us a glimpse of the kingdom that will one day come in its fullness. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is a great summary of the Christian message. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you go, what is the Christianity thing all about? Well, this is it. We believe that God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to become what he was not, while never ceasing to be what he was, become a man, so that he might become killable, so that he might take on himself all the burdens of all the sins of all his people and absorb the wrath of God in their place. He, he would die and go down into death so that we might die to sin, so that we might not have to bear the punishment that we have earned from God by rebelling against him. Furthermore, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, victorious over sickness and sin and death. He lives. And he has promised to all who will follow him that sickness and sin and death will not claim victory over them. That indeed their future looks as his. Those who trust in Jesus will share in a resurrection like Jesus's. Those who put their faith in the King will find the rest that he gives and their burden taken away. Let's look what, what Matthew teaches us about how Jesus heals with his word and his wounds. We see here in, in verse 16 that Jesus chases demons away with a word. Verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. One of the things we're going to see going forward is that Jesus exercises his authority and his power over not just the natural realm, but the supernatural realm, right? He, he has power over diseases and demons and even death, and that's going to be displayed for us time and again throughout these miracles. Jesus has the power to heal. He, he's Lord of the realms. He has real authority and he is a real king. And so he stands in the twilight of the evening and he sends those demons away into the dark. He is the king and he has all authority. Matthew takes us back further to show us Jesus healing with his touch. Look at verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law, that's Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick with a fever. It's interesting, I think, at this point to recognize that uh, Peter is married and does have a mother-in-law. This raises interesting questions for those uh, inventors of the papacy who would write Peter into that role and then require their ministers to be celibate and unmarried. Just an interesting question, I think for them to try and answer. At any rate, Jesus enters Peter's house. He sees Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. One of the interesting things is that Matthew takes us from the sort of the front end of the Sermon on the Mount all the way here where Jesus is casting out demons with his word and healing Peter's mother-in-law. It's all just one day the way that Matthew tells it. This is a pretty big day for Jesus. 
And you can imagine he's, he's coming, he's going to rest for the evening, and he walks into Peter's house, which Peter, by the way, must be doing pretty good fishing business-wise because he has his own home and he's got space enough to house his relatives and even his mother-in-law, y'all, man. And Jesus goes in and unexpectedly, he finds himself answering a house call. Peter's mother-in-law has got a fever. really is interesting. She doesn't come to Jesus and say, I'm feeling really poorly. Could you make me well? No, Jesus sees her. Brothers and sisters, isn't this such a great comfort? Even to those of us who find ourselves in sickness and suffering today. Friends, Jesus sees you in the same way he sees Peter's mother-in-law. He is not ambivalent to her suffering. He is not oblivious to her hardship. He sees and he knows. He sees you. He knows you. Whatever you're struggling with, whether it's physical or spiritual, emotional, but whatever burdens are on you, Jesus sees and he knows. He loves you and cares for you. He is full of grace and mercy. He sees Peter's mother-in-law lying there, sick with fever. No words are exchanged. He simply reaches out and touches her hand. And at the touch of Christ, the fever left her. She she doesn't come to Jesus, look at my great faith, heal me. Jesus sees her in her suffering, and he reaches down pulls her out of it. I love what Bruner said here. The mercy of God often works without being asked. We must not load the scales of faith with too much fright, as though God will not work unless we or someone else believes or prays enough. To think this quantitative way ruins free mercy. Divine mercy is so unmerited that it often goes into operation for its own reasons, without any connection with believing at all. Christ comes to Peter's mother-in-law, and he makes her well. She receives his mercy without even asking. Brothers and sisters, what a great picture of the church and of Christmas. God, recognizing that you and I, Christian, were in rebellion against him, decides to come, not because we asked, but because he's good, of his own free volition. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And it pleased God that he would come and take on the form of a man and die on the cross so that we might live. really is incredible. Mercy doesn't need to be asked. God shows up. That's one of my favorite things about Christmas is like we get pictures like this in Matthew. We said it once earlier, but it bears repeating. God the Son doesn't stop being God, that God has always existed in and of himself. We worship uh, one God in three persons, If you want to try to wrap your mind around that, that's we worship one what, God, and three who's, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They have always been God, eternally happy and content, fullness of joy, dependent on none. And God, for his own reason, decides he will save his people. And so God the Son according to the plan of God the Father, in the power of God the Holy Spirit, takes on to himself a second nature. 
becomes fully human like us. Some more math for you. He's one person with two natures, a divine nature so that he never stops being God, and a human nature so that he can be like you and me. This is the incarnation. This is Christmas. God identifying with us by becoming one of us. God makes the impossible possible. The infinite God becomes a man who can see Peter's mother-in-law and touch her hand. Isn't that incredible? When we think about this, we, in a spiritual sense, we see Jesus. We feel the, the touch of Christ. And yet, there is something that we get to look forward to. We, yes, we, we, we see him spiritually, we might touch him, and we eat of his body, and drink of his blood. Yet there is coming a day when faith will become sight. And we get to look into the eyes of our Savior and feel his touch. Isn't that incredible? Indeed, here we have a picture for us in Peter's mother-in-law's life. Christ sees us in need, dead in our sins, comes to us, puts his hands on us and makes us come to life. And by faith, we submit ourselves to him as Lord. It's good news. We ought to follow the pattern set out by Peter's mother-in-law here. Those of us who are healed by Christ, forgiven of our sins, ought to live to serve Christ. Gratitude is a good motivator as we worship our King with thanksgiving. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law with a touch, and he heals a centurion's son with a word from a distance. Look with me at verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. I do love this. It would be a little bit unusual for a centurion to approach a, a Jew here. Centurions and Jews are not on the best of terms, after all. Uh, centurions are, you know, part of the Roman brigade that's oppressing them. And uh, this Roman centurion is a, is a Gentile. Um, not great. Centurion would have overseen about 60 to 80 fighting men. They would have had uh, limited family and would be, would be discouraged from socializing from those who were underneath of them, under their rule. And so what happened as a product of this, not being allowed to have family or uh, strong social ties to uh, their soldiers, uh, was they got really close with their servants. And so here, the centurion is coming to ask Jesus to heal his servant who is in a bunch of pain at home. That word for servant there is sort of a word between slave and son. In fact, some of your translations, if you look, might translate it his child, right? And I think what Matthew intends to convey is the closeness of the relationship between the centurion and the servant. Comes to Jesus looking for a miracle for someone he cares deeply about. And so we, we could imagine the centurion sort of working up his courage to come to Jesus, rehearsing his speech. Right? I'm, uh, this guy, I know he's powerful, he's a healer. I, I've got it. Lord, my servant is at home lying paralyzed. I, I love him so much. He's suffering so badly. Could you please heal him? And then he comes to Jesus, and he, he starts 
reciting his speech. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And before he can get the request out of his mouth, Jesus says, I will come. I will come and heal him. I think Jesus is just eager to heal, eager to step in and love this Gentile centurion. Friends, I think we would do well to have the posture of Christ, our yes on the table, ready to help those in need before they even ask. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. And yet, our centurion doesn't want to accept Jesus' request for a house call. Now, our centurion says, verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. This is an incredible response. The centurion says, Jesus, there's no need for you to come to my house. It'd be a waste of your time. You can heal my servant with a word from right where you are right now. And then listen to his reasoning. This is what's really profound and what I think leads to Jesus marveling at his faith. He says, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And he explains how he exercises his authority. See, built into this analogy is a presupposition that, that we understand how Rome functioned. The idea was the emperor had all the authority, and then the emperor's authority was delegated out to others, including centurions, so that when the centurion gave a command, it was as if the emperor himself was giving a command. Maybe similar to uh, if my kids disobey my wife, which would be unimaginable. I might say to them, when you defy your mother, you are defying me. Or on occasion, uh, I will send my kids on an excursion without Chelsea or myself. And I will usually pull the eldest aside and say to him, you are responsible for your brothers. You're responsible. You have my authority. Use it for their good. And I'll pull the others over and say, listen to your brother, please. If you defy him, I'm going to understand that as defying me there will be consequences. See, the, the, the centurion is using a, a similar analog here. It's not perfect, but it is really perceptive. What he is saying is, I understand that you are God's son, and that when you speak, you speak with the authority of God. The centurion recognizes Jesus' authority as God's authority. And he uses his reason to arrive at a good conclusion. It doesn't matter if you're right next to my servant or if you're miles away from him. All that matters is your word, and it will be done. This is incredible faith. He recognizes who Jesus is. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a jarring response from Jesus. It's not quite what we expect at all. This Roman centurion comes to him 
demonstrates an incredible measure of faith, and Jesus' initial response to it is to turn to his Jewish followers and warn them. His warning is this. Many are going to come from east and west and eat with Abraham. You know, what does that mean? Well, he's appealing to uh, Isaiah in chapter 25, verse 6, when a eschatological end times feast is occurring. In other words, uh, the kingdom of God is coming in its fullness. All things are made well. And this is the description Isaiah gives. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. We want to uh, consider what it is from the perspective of Revelation. This is that great marriage supper of the Lamb where all the redeemed eat and drink unto the glory of God, where everyone raises a glass to King Jesus. And what Jesus is saying here is at that great feast, the only people that will be eating with Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham. He says, if you think that you are going to go to that great feast, if you think you are in the kingdom of God because of your biological Descent, you are wrong. If you think you get to come to this great banquet because of who your father is, you're wrong. The only people that will be eating with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will be those who have faith. That includes Gentiles which is why this is so scandalous, right? He says in verse 11, I'm sorry, 12, east, west Gentiles are going to come and eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, while, verse 12, the sons of the kingdom, those who have the covenants, those who should be waiting for the Messiah King, those who should be putting their faith in the promises of God, those who should be following Jesus, they're going to be the ones, those who think they are in are going to be the ones who are cast out into hell, into outer darkness where there is weeping and the rageful grinding of teeth. True love warns. True love warns. Jesus knows there are those around him who would presume upon the grace of God. I have performed the right rituals. I have uh, the right pedigree. Of course I'm in the kingdom of heaven. And he warns them, you are not unless your faith is in me. It really is striking. Only those who put their faith in the king will eat at the king's table. Friends, I think the lesson for us is simple that we should seek to love others and that we should be ready to warn them. And that includes those who would profess Christ in our life and tell us, well, yes, of course I'm a Christian and then cling to a particular sin and disobey the word of God. We would do well to warn them. True love warns. And Jesus said just a few verses ago in verse 22 of chapter 7, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. True love warns. And we should also recognize Matthew never has the Great Commission far from his mind. Right? We saw 
how God has always sought to bless all nations through Abraham. And so we see those Gentiles sprinkled into Jesus' genealogy. We see the mission to Israel initially here, and then it expands to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Indeed, he commissions his disciples to make disciples of all nations. And so too here we have an anticipation of the kingdom that is to come, where God's people are made up of the faithful. They are one body, the body of Christ. And they come around one table to eat and drink with Abraham. Jesus gives us this delightful picture of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob eating with the centurion and Luke and Cornelius, of Sarah and Rebecca eating with Rahab and Ruth. Jesus-loving Jews will eat together with Jesus-loving Gentiles because they are the one people of God redeemed by Christ the King. It is a wonderful picture. And so Jesus warns those who would presume upon his grace that like all the faithless, there is no future. And then Jesus turns back to the centurion and says simply this, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. He heals with a word. Because he is merciful and he is good, and because the centurion comes on behalf of his servant. Did you notice that? The servant doesn't come, the centurion does. And his servant ends up healed. Brothers and sisters, this is an encouragement for us to go to God on behalf of others in prayer. God answers prayer. So pray, husbands, for your wives. Wives, pray for your husbands and your grandparents and your children. Pray believing that God will be merciful. One of my favorite stories to this effect is that of the great St. Augustine, perhaps the greatest theologian throughout church history. And he wasn't always a Christian, though he was always brilliant. The story goes, his mother Monica followed him across, the, everywhere he would go, she'd follow him with tears and with praying. And finally, his conversion is interesting. He hears the voice of a young child say, take up and read. Goes and finds himself a Bible. And he reads from Romans 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And he becomes a Christian. God works through prayer. Church, pray. Pray on behalf of others. Jesus heals with his word. And he cleanses a leper with his touch. Let's turn our attention to those first four verses. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. This is uh, quite a shocking scene. A leper was not supposed to approach people. And yet he comes boldly approaching Jesus. Lepers, uh, again, leprosy was probably not Hansen's disease like you think of today, but some other ritually defiling skin condition. Some of you are going, yeah, I remember that. We studied in Leviticus. Turn back there for more on that later, Leviticus 13. But, but minimally, those who had leprosy would have some skin disease that was contagious and would have, have like a white flakiness to it wasn't great to have, and it would symbolize that you were ritually impure. 
And if you were ritually impure, which might or might not be a commentary on your moral purity, right? If you were ritually impure, there were certain places that you could not go and certain rituals that you could not perform. And so when one was ritually impure with something like leprosy, they were put outside the camp of Israel. They were cut off from normal life. Indeed, they were given the following instructions. Verse 45, Leviticus 13. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. Lepers had it pretty rough. One historian says this, they were victims of far more than the disease itself. The disease robbed them of their health, and the sentence imposed upon them as a consequence of the disease robbed them of their name, their occupation, their habits, their family, of fellowship, and of the worshiping community. To ensure against contact with society, lepers were required to make their appearance as repugnant as possible. And Josephus even goes so far as to speak of lepers as those who in no way differ from a corpse. And so here's this zombie of a man coming to Jesus, and you can imagine the crowds splitting like the Red Sea. He's not coming yelling, unclean, unclean, as he ought. He he comes boldly, otherwise he wouldn't have come at all. He comes boldly saying, you can make me clean. His faith is bold and humble. You can almost see him coming to, to Jesus. There, shouldn't, there should be more distance between them, but there's not. And he, he kneels at Jesus. Almost picture everybody else backs away and Jesus just sort of holds his ground. And the leper says, you can make me clean. The leper comes boldly. He comes humbly. There's no presumption in him or entitlement. He is not naming and claiming a healing. Rather, in faith, he is surrendering himself to the will of God. This is an important note. It is not always God's will to heal in the short term. Furthermore, healing is not dependent on how much faith you do or do not have. It depends on the mercy of God. We know this historically, experientially, and biblically. We know faithful saints get sick and die. After all, if it depended on faith, then we just needed to name and claim our healing one would think that Paul would have had his thorn removed or that Timothy would have had his stomach ailment eased. And yet this is not what we find in the scriptures. It's not always in God's will to heal on this side of eternity. Yet for all those who do come to Christ, it is always his will to heal spiritually and to forgive sins. Jesus offers to all who will come to him forgiveness of sins now and forever. And he also offers a resurrection unto eternal life after death. A healing that will finally come. This man comes not with a faith that would seek to manipulate the Lord Jesus, but with a faith that is surrendered to the will of Jesus. Verse 2, if you will, you can make me clean. See him kneel down there before Jesus, people kind of gasping as the zombie of a man is knelt there and didn't say unclean, unclean, but you can make me clean. Jesus holding his ground. And then the unthinkable happens. Jesus closes the distance between the two of them by reaching out 
and touching him. I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed and Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded you for proof to them. Jesus heals the man with a touch. That white skin is made healthy. Leprosy leaves him. And Jesus commands him, don't tell anybody, it's not time for my crucifixion yet. It's not time for my coronation yet. So let's just act normal, all right? Go and perform the regular rituals that are enjoined upon those who have experienced healing from leprosy. heals him with a touch, and and it is most striking to us that Jesus doesn't take on the leprosy, Jesus doesn't take on the ritual impurity, instead, the purity and the holiness of Jesus spreads to the leper. He is made well. Jesus loves this leper who was cut off from the people, loves outsiders. Jesus loves that Gentile centurion who didn't know or have claim to the promises of God until he came to God's king, loved and cared for Peter's mother-in-law, and indeed for the many who were brought to him in the evening. Jesus loves all kinds of people. He heals them one after the other. But we might ask, why? And I've already told you why, that verse 17, that it was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That his healing is to bring our attention not just to his authority, but to his atonement for sin and it is to anticipate what life will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. But, but just for a second with me, think about it. If, it were, if Jesus was just healing to display his naked power, like why wouldn't he just go full Superman, right? You guys, I'm God. You wanna, I'm going to fly. I'm going to do a couple laps around the temple, you know? Or he could have, you know, just was like Incredible Hulk can jump like a mile, You guys want to see a real miracle, I'm going to jump a mile. Or just straight shot lasers out of his eyes and cut down some trees. Think of it in all sorts of things. But instead, he heals people. And the reason is, he wants us to see this illustration. That as he takes sins away, as he takes illnesses away from the leper and the centurion and even Peter's mother-in-law, so too he takes away the sins of his people. Those who come to him in faith are made clean by his word and his touch because of his wounds. Jesus is our burden bearer. That's the point of the miracles. That's the point of the text. He bears the sins of his people. He he takes our sins so that he might give to us his purity and his righteousness so that we might enjoy life together with God and one another. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew gives us little details because he wants all of our attention on King Jesus. He wants our attention on the crown. Jesus is the king who wears man's curse upon his head. Genesis three seventeen. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Matthew 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. 
and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. They put a crown of thorns on him. That's not a mistake. The crown upon our king's head symbolically holds the curse of God that was pronounced upon Adam. Our sins are on his head. Jesus goes to the cross wearing the weight of our sins. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Friends, what a wonderful king we have. Non-Christian, I implore you to exchange belief in yourself and life according to your own moral code for faith in Christ and obedience to his commands. He can make you well. He is willing if you will come. Church, let us delight in our Savior together this morning as we prepare to come to the table and anticipate our own feast of eating and drinking together with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all who love the Lord Jesus. Let us come and eat of his body, drink of his blood, proclaim his death, and touch his kingdom. Let's celebrate together this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would keep us from forgetting all the benefits that you have given to us. We have nothing that we did not receive from you. We praise you because you forgive all iniquity. You heal all diseases. You redeem our lives from the pit. Indeed, you have crowned your people with loyal love and mercy. You have promised to us forgiveness of sins, which we are able to receive now, and final healing, resurrection to eternal life when you return to make all things new. We give you praise and honor and glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.